Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is retail noncompliance with my friend Tony Altman. The cost of retail noncompliance varies. It may start with just a financial penalty, but it could escalate into a damaged relationship with the retailer. Unchecked, it can even cost you the business. The key is to prevent retail noncompliance in the first place. And my friend Tony knows just what to do, so please take a listen. How's it going, Tony? Good, Joe. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about this topic. And it's funny, when you see her, I was trying to avoid putting noncompliance in the title, but it is such an important part of this business. And I don't think every we, we don't want to talk about it because it seems like, oh, it's boring. We all know to do that. But it's what's causing so much grief in the retail supply chain. So anyway, Tony, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Thanks. I am Tony Altman. I am the president and CEO of Motivational Fulfillment and Logistics Services. We are headquartered in Chino, California. We've got six facilities here, totaling a little bit more than 2.6 million square feet. Whoa. Yeah. And growing. In March, we'll be opening a roughly 400,000 square foot facility in the Memphis area and continuing to grow. Very nice. Very nice. So when you say six locations in California? Yes. In California, in the Inland Empire, we've got a great setup here because we have a campus facility. So five of our six facilities are very closely bunched together, which allows us to move both staff and equipment between the facilities and work very efficiently for our customers. Very nice. Very nice. So what kind of um, products do you guys typically do fulfillment for? We work in, in virtually every sector. We do housewares and appliances. We do baby gear. We do crafting. We do sporting goods and exercise equipment, beauty cosmetics and personal care, pet care, apparel, shoes, solar panels. So it sounds like a lot of it's though going being sold to consumers. Is this going through small parcel direct homes or is it going to retail locations? We do omnichannel fulfillment. So we do direct consumer fulfillment. We do retail fulfillment, Amazon, e-commerce dropship, reverse logistics, and we do a ton of value added services. Everything from very simple price ticketing and reboxing up to 30 step reworks or software reflashing. Tony, I know you've been doing this for a while, so I'll ask you this question. In the olden days, not so long ago, retail logistics was hard because you had to get that consumer product, whatever it might be, from your location to a retail store, and they had to have the proper inventory at 10 stores, 15 stores, however many stores. That was really hard, (laughs) and that was before... We all of a sudden had this other really cool channel, which was Amazon. You go, oh, okay, we can manage that. And then, oh, we also want to sell it via our own website. And then we want to maybe open our own stores. And now I'm hearing more people say, oh, I'm buying from TikTok, (laughs) which I was like, I don't even have TikTok. I'm afraid of the time I waste. But it seems like a, a difficult business went from yeah, we some truckload and LTL to stores that never were too difficult to get to all of a sudden, a, I'm going to say it's just a really complex, difficult business. 
Yes, you really have to be able to service the customer's needs, whatever it is. On the direct-to-consumer side, whether it's a customer's website, whether they're selling on TV or radio, social media, flash sales, QVC HSN, you've got to be able to get that package directly in the consumer's hands. On the retail side, whether you're shipping directly to a brick-and-mortar store, to a DC, doing an e-commerce dropship order, Amazon, FBA, FBM, Vendor Central, there's so many ways that you can ship an order and you have to be able to service that customer and service all those different avenues. Damn, that's not easy. Tell us a little bit about you, Tony. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Some career highlights before you joined Motivational. Grew up in California, went to college at UC Santa Barbara, went to law school. Nice. My buddy went there. He said that is the most perfect weather in the world is in Santa Barbara. I always tell people that I suffered. I went to two of the ugliest campuses in the country. I went to UC Santa Barbara undergrad and Pepperdine Law School. So oh, not too shabby. On the beach for both of them, but graduated from Pepperdine Law. Minor in surfing and stuff. (laughs) Exactly. Passed the bar. I was very proud of what, this is a family-owned business. My dad started the business back in 1977. My sister worked here for 30 years. I was very proud of what they had built, but I wanted to do something on my own. I wanted to build my own business and make sure that prove that I could do something on my own. So I started a civil litigation law firm, built that firm up from nothing into a fairly successful firm, did that for 15 years. At the same time that I was working at my firm and growing my firm, Motivational was continuing to grow and I was service helping my dad and my sister out with that business. It was a lot of work, a lot of stress. And at the age of 36, I had a pulmonary embolism. And so it was time to make a decision in terms of cutting some stress and work out of my life and decided that, you know what, I like working with my dad and my sister and I want to spend more time with my family and help grow that business. And so I closed my practice and transitioned out of the law into uh, motivational full time. Very nice. Very nice. I told you before we hit record, I worked for my dad. My dad had a small engineering business, not nearly as successful as motivational has been. But I always say there are some challenges in that business. But you came in where you already had some success. I lived at home and I worked for my dad's engineering business. So when I would go out and stay out too late and then go, I think I'm going to call in. Oh, no, they know I got in at three in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) It was an interesting transition for me and my family because I was walking away from a fairly successful law practice, moving my family, selling our home and, and moving to another city and going to work with my dad and my sister full time. And as much as we're a very close family, we generally get along great, but who knows once you go into business, if you're going to get get along great or fight like cats and dogs, but it turned out to be the best decision I ever made. Yeah. You get to discuss business at the Thanksgiving dinner, which other people don't get to do. Exactly. (laughs) Anyway, before we hit record, we were talking about retail logistics, which you guys do. So when I say retail logistics, you're supporting all of this, what we call consumer packaged goods whether it's food or, as you said, clothes or baby gear or exercise equipment, cosmetics, nutraceutical, all, all that stuff that has to go from a supplier that made it made somewhere, maybe made it in China, and it has to get to your location. How does it go from their location to your location? Uh, most of the products that we have are manufactured overseas, and so they arrive at the port of LA Long Beach. They're drained to our location in a, a floor-loaded container. And then we unload that container and put away the goods at our warehouse. And then as we receive orders from our customers, we'll pick those orders and then ship them to a retail DC or directly to a retail store. Very nice. Very nice. So being in California is nice because you're not too far from the port relative 
Correct. We're about 35 minutes from the port of LA Long Beach. I'm in the Detroit metro area. When I was still working in the logistics side, I remember supporting some automotive customers that stuff would get come from China, go part of Long Beach or LA, dray to the rail head, rail to Chicago. We pick it up there. And it's what we had to do, but obviously that's an extra three, four days that you guys don't have to deal with. Correct. Correct. Yeah. We can unload quickly and ship quickly. I know you're moving open a location in Memphis, which is Memphis and uh, that's Southeast is growing like a weed. And a lot of the um, congestion that we experienced in LA and Long Beach is going to slowly moving to the East Coast because we still have 65% of the population this side, east of the Mississippi, but it's slowly moving south and west. So we have to move our locations with the people. But if you want people, California has plenty. Yes. And that's one of the benefits of the Memphis location is it will allow us to reach between California and Memphis. We'll be able to reach close to 90% of the country in two days or less for our direct consumer orders. Very nice. So we want to talk about non-compliance. So first off, what is vendor compliance? So retailers set guidelines, delivery guidelines for suppliers to meet in order to receive goods. If you can imagine a Walmart or a Target, they're receiving goods from thousands of, of suppliers. And if each supplier sent goods to them in their own fashion, it would be really difficult for those retailers to take those goods in and process them in an efficient manner. And so they set these vendor compliance guidelines so that all the suppliers will be consistent in the way that they send goods to the retailer. Yep. And so sometimes we hear Walmart had something called on time and in full. I think they've actually moved beyond that to something else. But on time and in full is basically what we're looking for from our suppliers. And so I want to get that those 10 pallets in the way that they're supposed to be packed right? So I can unpack them. If you wrap it 30 times around and it takes me an hour to unpack the stuff you sent me, I might not be happy with you. If it's not labeled properly, I'm not happy with you. If the palette you sent is oversized or even undersized, I imagine they're probably unhappy, right? Correct. So OTIF is obviously one of them on, on time and in full is a huge issue. They want to make, they order a certain amount of product so that they can put it into the store and sell it. And if they get too much product or too little product, they're, like you said, unhappy. But if they get damaged goods, then they can't. They order pristine product and they want to receive pristine product so they can turn and sell that to the customer. So it could be damaged product. It could be mislabeled product in terms of it's labeled incorrectly or packaged incorrectly. You could sell, the, you could send them the wrong master pack. Perhaps you sold them a four pack and you shipped them a six pack or an eight pack. Like you said, it could be that you sent them a pallet with overhang or built to the wrong pallet height or the wrong pallet quantity. You didn't use corner boards or a top cap as required by the retailer. So it could be the labeling or packaging. It could be that the transportation had issues that they require that you use a certain carrier and then you, that you didn't use the, the designated carrier or that you didn't make the delivery window. Could be documentation that you didn't send an ASN or send an ASN timely or that the bill of lading. ASN's or, a, it's advanced shipping notice, right? So that's telling them it's going to arrive. It was supposed to arrive on Friday. It is going to arrive on Friday. 
Correct. And sometimes here in California, the DCs are only half hour, 45 minutes from our location. So if you don't send that ASN, the moment that truck leaves, that truck's going to arrive to the retailer's distribution center before the ASN arrives and you're going to receive a chargeback. It's important your documentation's in order and arrives on time. I never, in logistics, I never supported a retail location, but I did support automotive production facilities. And I always remember my customer would order a certain number of parts. Let's just say it's a thousand. And then you never want to shut down production in an automotive. So sometimes the supplier would say, oh, I'm a little like we're behind. So rather than send a thousand tomorrow, I'm going to send 800 today. And I remember I started noticing just from my people saying, oh, these guys sent an extra two LTLs this week. And I was like, wait, why? And they're like, like, I don't know. I said, follow up. I want to understand why they get the same number every week. And then all of a sudden they, and they said, oh, we're behind on production. So we send two. And I was like, yeah, but it's like extra cost to our customer that we, we representing those best interests. And they're like, well, it's no big deal. And I was like, it is a big deal. It's non-compliant. So I remember when we flagged it to our customer, it was like, oh my God, I had no idea this was happening. I was like, they didn't tell us it was happening. And your production, your materials receiving didn't do their job either. But I was thinking, not like anybody had any real bad intentions. They just didn't want to shut the plant down. And probably if they got permission ahead of time, no one would have been bent out of shape. They'd say, get back on track. And by the way, we're not paying for the extra logistics cost because you've sent it in two truckloads rather than one. It's a big deal. It added up. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars. It it is. At the end of the day, we all hate vendor compliance and we hate the chargebacks that result from it. But if you look at it from the retailer standpoint, they're planning labor on their end as well to receive and put away and process cartons. And if your truck doesn't arrive at their facility on time or you send too much inventory or not enough inventory, if you send product that's labeled incorrectly or damaged and now they have to throw extra labor at it to fix the problem with the goods, they need to recoup those costs. And so that's the reason for those chargebacks. Yep. And I'm assuming every retail retailer is slightly different than the other. Am I right? To it is. every re- Not every retailer has, but every major retailer has vendor compliance and has their own vendor compliance guide or routing guide, as it's called, and has their own unique set of guidelines. And so the supply, it's the supplier's job to understand those guidelines and make sure that you are following the specific guidelines for the individual retailer that you're shipping to. So how do you get notice from, say, your customer that they said, hey, send... 1,000 of these nutraceuticals to XYZ retailer. How do you get that notice? It happens a number of different ways, depending on the sophistication level of our customers. Some send a flat file or an Excel file to us, and some send it through EDI or an API. But they'll pass an order to us that tells us exactly what to send to that customer. But once we get notice that we have to send 1,000 units to Walmart, it's our job to then review the routing guide and know exactly what the requirements are to send that shipment to Walmart and that we're using the right grade of pallet, that we're building the pallet to the right height, that we're labeling each carton that goes out in the right location on the master carton, that we're following the proper ASN requirements, that we're using the right transportation, that we're hitting the delivery window, that we're basically meeting every single delivery requirements set by Walmart to ensure that our customer doesn't get charged back. Yep. 
And before we hit record, we were talking about the, if, let's just say I was shipping to a Walmart and I did not, for whatever reason, wasn't able to, let's just say I was supposed to send a thousand, I sent 800 of a product. And now I'm not in full. I might've been on time, but I'm not in full. I'm going to get a fine. What is that? How do they, do, how's that fine? Give me in a sense for the magnitude of that. So the most noticeable would be the financial the punitive financial penalty that's charged back to you. And, and depending on what the violation is, it could be uh, a flat rate. So if you fail to label a carton correctly, they could charge you a certain dollar amount for each carton you labeled incorrectly. If you, were, if you weren't on time in full, then they could charge back a certain percentage of the PO. And that could range from 1% to 10% of the total PO or invoice amount. If I, there's $100,000 in the product, which is a lot, obviously, for going to retail, but it could be 10% of that or 1% of that? Correct. could be up to 10%. And before we hit record, you were having this conversation. I think a brand, the first thought is that fine is the worst of it, but it's not the worst of it. That's just the beginning of the pain of noncompliance. Please elaborate. Yeah, it's probably the least of it because what, what you don't think about are the intangibles, it, you know, what happens because I didn't send them the right amount of units? Did my product not make it to the shelf? Did a cu end consumer not get to buy my product because I didn't make it onto the shelf space? Is Walmart not going to reorder from me because I'm not getting shipments to them appropriately and in a compliant format? So instead of buying the widget for me, they're going to buy the widget from another company and put it on the shelf so that a customer can buy that. Now Just I got my customers experimenting with somebody else. Right. They said all of a sudden they test another company's product. And now instead of buying your product, they've, they're onto somebody else's and you've lost that consumer forever. That can, that shelf space in retail locations is very coveted. If you, this is one of the way retailers are evaluating their customers. Cause if they say, oh, you know what? Absolutely love their product, but they're pretty spotty about putting it on the shelf. If they don't put it on the shelf, they can't make money. But more importantly to Walmart or Meyer or Kroger or Target is we can't make money on it. Correct. We're very fortunate. We used to get a lot of referrals from Bed Bath when they were in business. We get from Walmart, Kohl's, a number of other retailers that will go to their suppliers and say, listen, we love your product. You do a lousy job of getting it, in, getting it to us. And if you don't fix it, we can't carry your product in our store anymore. But we'd recommend Motivational because they do a, a really bang up job of getting it to us. And if you can get it squared away, we'll continue to put you on the shelf. And so we've been very fortunate throughout the years to get those types of referrals directly from the retailers to the supplier. But yes, oftentimes if the supplier can't iron out their issues and can't get the product to the retailer in a vendor compliant way, they lose that coveted shelf space that they've worked very hard and spent a lot of money to, to earn. Yeah. And then reminds me of that Woody Allen comment. I forgot what the full quote was, but it was something like 90% of life is showing up. And that definitely applies to this. And by the way, talk about perishable. And I don't mean just food. Perishable in so many things are perishable, meaning if you deliver the Halloween candy in early November, you're, you're not going to get any fans. And if you get the Christmas stuff there just in time for Christmas, you failed, right? And Obviously, we all think of perishable as food, and that is a big deal, but there's so much in the store that now in California, you don't have the seasons like we do here in the Midwest. 
I don't want to wear a sweater once the summer comes. So if the sweaters arrive like a few months late to the store, I missed the season. So please speak about the perishable. Yeah, you, you said it's, there's only one Thanksgiving and Black Friday holiday and Cyber Monday. There's only one Christmas. We may not have the seasons out in California, but there are so many holidays and so many promotions built around those holidays that if you can't get the goods to the retailers in time for them to put the stuff out in the store and on the shelf to meet that holiday demand, you've lost out on that. And again, like you said, if you're selling winter jackets and you miss the winter promotion, you're now holding on to those goods for a solid year and paying storage on those goods for a right. year to the point where by the time you ship those next season, if the retailer will even reorder them the next season, you're upside down on those goods for sure. Yeah. So we talked about the fine you might get, and that's the most, as you said, the very tangible. You notice that the brand gets, hey, we're going to ding you for $2,500 because you didn't do this correctly. You're non-compliant. But also that retailer is evaluating me and all the rest of the CPGs that they work with. And they're saying, these guys just don't get it. They just, they don't deliver on time. And then they're going to look at some other stuff. How well is their stuff selling? But if their stuff is selling well and the shelf is always empty, I don't care. Again, I think I won't mention the brand. I go to Costco and I love Costco. There's a product that I love that is there about every third time. And it's very frustrating. And I find myself ordering it online so they didn't lose me. I buy it from Costco online, but that bugs me. I'm like, damn it, get it over here. And if I wasn't such a loyal customer of that brand, I'd be trying out the other brands. There's 20 of them. It's Costco, for God's sakes. Yeah. Costco is a great example because they carry so few SKUs. They only carry roughly 5,000 SKUs where a normal, let's say grocery store store would carry 30,000 SKUs. Yeah. And and the Walmarts are what, 100,000 plus? Yeah. Yeah. But to get into a Costco is so difficult. So if you're lucky enough to get into Costco and it's a great business, if you can get in there, the stuff sells and moves. You just can't afford to lose that space by failing to get the, the your goods into the store on time. You've got to make sure you get it there and in a compliant fashion. I won't mention the company we'd all recognize, and it's not my job to be the narc over here, but a big CPG company I was talking to one of their sales guys, and he said, oh, we sell a ton through Costco, but we have to sell in a special Costco size that is huge. And I buy that product, so I know I'm buying it for a year when I get it. <laughs> and says, we don't make a lot of money there, but it's protecting our our market. We don't want we don't want Joe or Tony to go to the store and go, I normally get blank, but since it doesn't sell in bulk at Costco, I am going to go with try something else out. That is beyond the OTIF cost. That is really bad when I'm losing because people started experimenting with other products. Market share is so difficult to gain that you can't afford to do anything that jeopardizes your market share or even allows a customer to turn their head and look in another brand's direction. Yep. Yep. I think about this all the time with every time I talk to someone like you who does a lot of retail stuff is we all know how successful Walmart's been. Tons of SKUs. And I think there's a day when you want to go to Walmart or I, I live by Meyer uh, in Michigan. I think it's six states in the Midwest, very similar to, to Walmart. They're the unique kind of store. But I think all of us, 
when we do some online shopping, you know, I wouldn't mind getting my stuff from Costco or from a Walmart or Meyer delivered because it's not always the best experience. You're walking through a massive store, got to buy, walk through all the aisles of the stuff I don't need. So we avoid that sometimes going to Kroger. Sometimes you're like, that's not an experience. That's what I have to do. So I think sometimes we go, I'll buy online, but I think more and more stores, Trader Joe's is one of them, Aldi, very few SKUs, but people seem to like walking through those stores. Costco, I love going to Costco. <laughs> it's like a break from the day. So I think we're going to see certain retail formats go going forward with much fewer SKUs. And that means you really have to protect your on time and in full. You have to be 100% compliant or you're not going to be there because they don't have 15 types of peanut butter. They got three and you're one of the lucky three. And if you're not there, bye-bye. <laughs> Correct. And the other thing that's happened since COVID is that retailers don't want to get stuck with this huge glut of inventory anymore. And so they've really reduced the amount of on-hand inventory that they're carrying. I've heard the the phrase, uh, one to show and one to go. So one for the shelf to so for the customer to look at and one in the back room for the, to ship to yep. the customer or to sell the customer. And replenishment is constantly happening so that they have enough inventory to satisfy customer demand. But if you're not getting the product there to them on time and in full, then they can't service the customer's needs. Back in the day when they were really holding large amounts of inventory, it might've been a little less important, but with them keeping smaller amounts of inventory, it, it, the importance has just gone up. We, most of the people who see my podcast are in transportation, logistics, warehousing, supply chain. A lot of times people in the transportation space, we think of ourselves as the center of the universe. Inventory carrying costs are much more important than transportation costs for most products. And you're right. We don't want to have a ton of inventory on hand. I spent a lot of time in lean and automotive, and it was getting rid of all the excess inventory that costs you money. And by the way, it always is out of date. So you say, oh, we got all this inventory. You're like, this is a model year behind or a revision behind has to be reworked or thrown out. And so making extra, say, oh, I made a thousand extra. That's great because we're doing a revision this week. <laughs> Doesn't help. <laughs> anyway, Tony, I want to summarize some of what we talked about. And oh, before we forget, I want to talk about this first. How do we prevent all of these things? And by the way, speak to chargebacks because that's another big challenge related to this non-compliance. How do we prevent chargebacks? How do we prevent fines? How do we get to a place where we're not, we're compliant and we're not getting all those bad things like the fines, the relationship damage, and potentially my customers trying out other products? Sure. First, you got to know the vendor compliance, the routing guides. You, you've got to collect the routing guides for all of the retailers that you're shipping to, get them into one central common location and learn them. Cover to cover, you've got to understand what those vendor compliance guides say and what they require of you when shipping to that retailer. What we do is for every, our account executives are expected to know the routing guide for every retailer that they're shipping to. But we also ask each account executive to specialize in a major retailer. So we have a Walmart expert, we have a Costco expert, we have a Target expert. So if there's any kind of question that somebody has, they can go to them. And that person should know that routing guide really cover to cover. The second thing is to implement processes to help combat those. Create 
what we call cheat sheets for the fulfillment team or for the people that are shipping to the retailer. You know, sometimes the vendor compliance guides are this thick. Right. And they cover everything from documentation to transportation to on time and in full to, you know, the grade of pallet to pallet height to all of those topics. And really, that's not relevant to every person that's handling the goods along the path. And so really summarizing down to what that person needs to know so that when it goes to the warehouse, the people labeling and packing and building the pallets, they can look at a cheat sheet and know that, okay, this is going to Walmart. I've got to label this carton on this location of the box. I've got to use this grade pallet. I can only build the pallet this height boil it down to easy to use instructions so that they can follow those instructions and make sure that they get the order right. Create standard operating procedures. If you go to any one of our six warehouses, we have standard procedures. If we pluck an employee out of one and drop them into another warehouse, they can go right to work and do the same work that they were doing in the other warehouse because we have standard procedures throughout those warehouses. So that's very important. Continuously train your team. Those routing guides are always changing. And so you need to make sure you have the latest copy and that you're constantly reviewing them and updating and training your team to make sure that you're doing it correctly. QC, QC. I can't say it That's enough. That's quality control. Quality control. <laughs> you have to make sure that on the back end before that shipment goes out, that somebody is reviewing the shipment to make sure that everything was done properly. Yep. By the way, if I could jump in on that, we didn't talk about it, but I'm, I'm, I already know the answer. To be successful at this, it's not just all of the follow the process and the SOP. You have to have a team that you've developed and that you've retained. And it is difficult. I joke about it on the podcast all the time. If for whatever reason somebody said, Joe, you no longer have the career you have, you have to go start over again somewhere. I could say, I'm going to start in a warehouse. Oh, wait, am I able to walk around with heavy things in my arms all day? No, I'll just drive a lift. (laughs) Screw it. I'm not doing that. We have to make the job in the warehouse the first step in a supply chain career, and we have to retain those people. And that's not easy because it's not always easy work. Correct. So the standard tenure of a motivational employee is about 12 and a half years. Whoa. Yes. So we've been fortunate enough. And my dad used to tell this horrible joke that either they enjoy working here or we've ruined them so badly that they can't find a job anyplace else. (laughs) (laughs) But... Now, that doesn't mean that we're not using temp labor on top of our motivational labor, but the key is is that for those key roles, the line supervisors and the people handling the labeling and making sure that the, the labels match the SKU and doing the QC and doing the critical jobs to ensure that we're compliant. Those are our full-time, long-term, experienced, motivational people that know what they're doing. And then you fill in and sprinkle in the temp labor to do the actual labeling and shrink wrapping the pallets and the jobs that you know aren't as critical in terms of vendor compliance and, and making sure that you're compliant. And so it is critical, like you said, that you standardize that. You get experienced people that not only know the jobs, but that work on specific accounts consistently. So they know the customer or supplier that they're working with. They know the retailers that they're shipping to. Like I said, we have cheat sheets for every retailer that we ship to, and those go with the labels that we're sending out to the warehouse. But that team works for that supplier shipping to that retailer 12 months out of the year. So they know when they ship to Walmart, where that label goes, they know how high to build the pallet. And that's critical to have an experienced team that knows what they're doing. Yeah. And the only way to get that experience is to treat them well and get, retain them. And by the way, I say this all the time. I am a baby boomer. 
I'm one of the younger baby boomers. The baby boomers are retiring and the generation behind us is very short on labor. They're also the wealthiest generation of Americans and the most educated generation of Americans. And I say it all the time on my podcast and it's, I don't say it to be provocative, but who's raising truck drivers and dock workers and retail, retail workers, and also people working in these fulfillment centers. And I think everyone wants their son or daughter to have opportunity. So again, I think we have to turn those jobs in the warehouse and in the retail locations into the first step on the rung of a nice supply chain career, retail career, whatever. It can't be like a dead end job. And I I think when you say you kept people there for 12 years, on average, that means people are moving up. They're having new opportunities. They're able to have a career rather than just a job where they walk around with heavy things in their arms all day. Correct. (laughs) And our DC manager started out in the warehouse on the line or in the driving a forklift or in the receiving department. And they've worked their way up and worked in every department on the way. So that by the time they're managing a facility, they've done every job in the facility and have the experience and it's critical. Yep. I love it. Chargebacks is bar- a big part of this problem uh, that we're talking about when we talk about non-compliance. What is a chargeback and how do I prevent it? Chargeback, again, is it's a monetary penalty imposed by the retailer. We've talked a little bit about ways you can prevent it. Uh, some other ways to prevent is utilize a, a quality at WMS, critical. Retailers are great, but you know what? A lot of times chargebacks are just flat wrong. You have to have the documentation (laughs) and the evidence to be able to combat and fight that chargeback. You should be taking photos of all of your outbound trailers, the front, the, you know, the nose, the middle and the back of the trailer as it leaves so that you can combat that chargeback when you receive it from the retailer. Require your drivers to do a carton count when they pick up at the facility so that you can show that when they picked up at the facility, that load went out in full. So when you get an OTIF chargeback, you can show that, nope, we shipped in full and your driver verified when they picked up at our facility. They picked up 26 pallets and 2,500 cartons, and they signed on the bill of lading showing that they received in full the order. And that way you can combat that chargeback and fight it when the, the retailer tries to charge charge back. So you said you guys do a lot of value-added services. So what are kind of value-added services you guys are adding in the equation? Again, we'll do everything from a, a very simple price ticket or UPC uh, change to reboxing, POP or PDQ displays. Uh, we'll do software updates. We had a customer that wanted to bring in an air purifier, but due to tariff issues, it was too expensive. And so they brought in a fan and we did a 30-step rework to convert the fan into an air purifier. So we do some very <laughs> complex, we replace defective parts. We label over claims that they're having issues with on the retail packaging. I sat down not too long ago and tried to figure out how many reworks we've done in the last 10 years or so. And I was able to piece together that we've done in excess of 15 million reworks in the last 10 years. I think we all want, if I, run, I, I come from an engineering and manufacturing background. So I always remember there's certain things we wanted to make in our manufacturing locations. And then there'd be certain things where you go, oh, just for the Japanese market, there needs to be this label on it. So we're not going to do that in the factory on every 100th part. We'll let the the next step in the in the supply chain do it. And that is increasingly important because there is every store has 
hey, we want a special. We want to sell a three-pack of that. And another one says, oh, we want to sell a two-pack. Okay. <laughs> that's that's You might do that in your facility, but you might have to repackage in on the fly, which is when it pays to have motivational as a partner. Yeah. Target doesn't want to sell what Walmart has and, and vice versa. And so Walmart selling in a red <laughs> box with upsell A in the box and Target selling in a blue box with upsell B in there. And when the customer runs out of Walmart inventory, they need to do a quick rework to change out the box and change out the upsell. So they have enough inventory to fill that purchase order. And so we step in and do those changes for them. Yeah. By the way, I, I won't mention names or products, but I've read this and I know it to be true is there's certain chains that say you won't beat our price. If you find our price lower anywhere else, you can come money back guarantee, right? Right. We'll match it. Or- but then they ask the manufacturer, make that uh, something you only sell to us. Correct. <laughs> so there was no way <laughs> they were ever going to have anybody walk in and go, hey, I found this down the street for a hundred bucks cheaper. No, actually, that's slightly different. <laughs> anyway, so one last thing before we wrap this up. I'm going to say this again to anyone who's looking for uh, a partner, a fulfillment partner. This is why you don't, all the things we talked about is why you don't want somebody learning on your dime. So if they go, oh, yeah, we can figure that out. If you have to sell to Walmart and Target and all that, find somebody who's already doing it. Don't select a 3PL that says, we will figure it out. We're good guys. You like us. (laughs) So let's work together. It's the wrong way to do it. You want to pick someone who's already doing it says, hey, we'll teach you. We'll show you the ropes. (laughs) You don't have to, we don't have to stumble along together. Somebody has to know what they're doing. Joe, the way we say it to our customer is your job is to go out and design and develop new product and sell that product. Our job is to deliver it to your end consumer, whether that's a direct consumer order or into the retail store in a compliant manner. Why should the supplier or the marketer be worried about distribution and compliance and all of those things? Their job is to design and develop products and sell that product. They should be looking at a 3PL to, to do the back end for them. Yep. I love it. So I'm going to try and summarize all this and then we'll get your final thoughts. So we're talking to Tony Altman. We're talking about non-compliant costs, retail non-compliance costs, and there are a lot of them. And we talked about what is vendor compliance. You give us a little definition The we get... If you're not on time and in full, you get a fine, which is horrible. No one wants that. But that is only the beginning of the bad news. You're potentially going to get dinged on your evaluation from that retailer, which means you might not be on their shelves anymore. For sure, you're hurting the relationship. Your brand isn't on the shelf. If it's not on the shelf, you can't sell it. (laughs) So you don't make money, but also the retailer doesn't make money. And your customer is trying out new product. And that is a no for your customer. They should only use your stuff. And then you talked about all the ways that a professional fulfillment company will make sure that I stay compliant and I don't get those chargebacks and I don't have those reputational issues or the other fines that come with this problem. Final thoughts on the topic, Tony Altman. One thing I did fail to mention is that many of the retailers actually have scorecards. They'll actually give you a, a monthly or quarterly scorecard that evaluates your performance. And that scorecard or is going to determine whether or not they purchase from you in the future. And it's just critical. But it goes back. Final thoughts are just what I said is suppliers should really focus on developing and selling new product. And they should really count on somebody that has the 
expertise, experience, and track record of successfully delivering products to those retailers in a compliant manner without experiencing chargebacks to take care of that for them. Yep. That's what you need. You need a partner who knows the way. Because again, I think, I always think about the smaller businesses as they grow. You might've started as a native, internet native, where you say, we sell, you know, our cologne online. And then at some point it's beyond your store, it's Amazon. And then somebody says, hey, we finally got shelf space at blank retailer. The expectation is we're going to sell like we're going to sell to other retailers. You do not want to go this alone. <laughs> right. and, and, and to your point, I would look for when you're looking for a partner, a 3PL partner, look for somebody that has experience in all of those different areas of fulfillment. Because like you said, you may sh- be shipping today to the retail store. But more and more of the retailers, retail stores are carrying less inventory, putting more inventory online and asking you to do e-commerce dropship. And then all of a sudden, Amazon contacts you. And now they want some of it FBA, but they want some of it FBM. And then, hey, you know what? Our TikTok's taken off and we got to sell directly to consumer through that. And you know what? We're building out a website. And so there's just so many different channels that you can sell through that you need a partner that has experience in servicing all of those different sectors and all those different channels. And so don't focus on what you're doing today. Focus on what your business could grow into and pick a partner that has the ability to not only service all those channels, but has the ability to grow with you and grow with your business. Um, because you don't want to work with a partner today and in six months or a year or two years have to make a change um, because changing fulfillment partners is very expensive. And very time consuming. Yep. What I'll do, uh, Tony, is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, link to your website, and any of the links you and Teresa, your marketing person, gives me. We'll put those in the show notes so people can reach out and talk to you. Who's your sweet spot for your company? Like you said, CPG, consumer packaged goods, pretty much anything. We stay away from food and temperature control, but pretty much anything other than that. We ship the gamut. As I said, we service D to C retail, Amazon, e-commerce drop ship. We'll take it all. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. Tony, what conferences will we see you and the fine folks from Motivational at in the coming year? So John Bonney, our VP of sales is currently at CES in Las Vegas. Nice. He will be at the Manifest show. Oh, I'll be there. John and I will be at the Inspired Home show in Chicago. Nice. And then we'll be advertising on LinkedIn what shows will be on beyond that. But we have a full show schedule throughout the year. Yes. Doesn't ever. it's, It's funny. Somebody said on my podcast the other day. Okay, guys, no more conferences. I would like to be home some days. (laughs) (laughs) But I will see you. You're not at Manifest, but I'll see your sales guys at Manifest. Correct. You will. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate what you guys are doing and how you're doing it. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate the time and I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. All right. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.